my experience when I met the, for the first time with my PhD supervisor when I was a new student at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and I, I came into that program. I was accepted. He personally accepted me. He only accepted seven or so students at a time, two or three per year. So he'd seen a lot of my work already. He had, he'd seen grades. He'd gotten references from various uh, professors I had, including D.A. Carson at TEDS wrote a reference for me to go to this school. And yet, when I had my first meeting with him, I remember specifically he challenging me and asking me the question, do you even know how to read? And at first I was a little offended by the question and to be honest with you, a little taken aback. In fact, I didn't even answer right away. I kind of paused and was looking at him with that thick English accent that he had. I had two master's degrees. I think I know how to read. I had to do proficiency exams in a couple different languages just to get into the program, let alone English. And he's like, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm asking if you know how to engage, how to think critically, how to take on an author, how to find a good argument. Like, if you don't know how to do that well, there's going to be a slow process. And he challenged me for being too soft of a reader. Just because it's published doesn't mean it's right or good. He wanted me to think critically. He wanted to clear away any rubble or things that would hinder me. The very first meeting we had before I would start building something. You don't just start building something until not only do you have all your tools, but you've kind of cleared the side away so that you can put something there properly. Well, I feel like when we talk about the church, we might need to do a little bit of that. And I don't want it to be offensive. I don't, I just, just as ultimately, my supervisor was not trying to offend me. He was just making clear we were on the same page and that any rubble was cleared away. We need to do that when it comes to the church. What do you think of? What comes to mind when you hear the word church? What are your assumptions about its importance, its role in the life of the Christian, its ministry in the community in the world? What are your assumptions about its practices and what it is? Well, before we can talk about what it is, we may need to ask offensively, well, do you know what it isn't? I was no beginner in theology when I was a PhD student. My supervisor didn't care. He was going to ask me that question. You may not be a beginner in the church. It might even be offensive for me to ask you, do you know what the church is? Here, you've been a member of the church longer than I've been here. Some of you may have been members longer than I've been alive. Well, don't take any offense. Just like I wasn't supposed to. What is the church? Well, let's start today with what it isn't. There's four common misconceptions of the church that, that I want to share with you today and, and correct and challenge them. In a sense, clearing away the rubble so that next week we can begin and answer the question, what is the church? Let me pray before we jump into God's word and this topic today. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear from you, minister to us. Father, we know that your church is a big deal. It's a big deal to you and your eternal purposes and ever-present ministry in this world. And if it's a big deal for you, it should be a big deal for us. So help us to hear that this morning and have our lives framed by what is right and true. Help us clear away any rubble 
before we build upon a site specifically in regard to the nature and the purpose of the local church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing, the church is not a metaphor. For many Christians, the, ter- the church can be spoken of like a thing of legend, like a story of castles and Camelot. It's spoken of, that is, the church can be spoken of in theoretical language, abstract language, as some beautiful spiritual ideal that exists in some vague way, but that doesn't really impinge on me as a person, not something that I'm formally connected to, but I kind of like the idea, because there's church language all over the New Testament, so I've got to have that as part of my biblical understanding, but I treat it as if it's just a metaphor. What I'm saying is that the way Christians can talk of church is really a metaphorical way about, uh, of speaking about something else. Christians talk about the church in a way that makes it a metaphorical way of speaking of something different, about community. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love the church. And again, they're not talking about the institutional church. When they say, I love the church, they're talking about that, that little study they once in a while do with their friends in someone's kitchen. Or they're talking about the relationship that they got this Christian friend that they went to college with that they can always call even though they haven't seen them except on Facebook for four years. Like that's what they're talking about. When they do that, they're using church in some metaphorical, abstract, theoretical way. That's not untrue, but it's not fully complete. Or they might, talk, they might speak church language when they're talking about practices, spiritual disciplines that they do to grow in Christ. But again, that treats it as a metaphor. The church is not a means to an end. Now, I think there's reasons for this. If we were to look back over the last couple hundred years, you can see this move where we've separated spiritual things from material or physical things. We've become, the the, the fancy word is dualists. So we speak spiritual language in contrast to physical language, and we we separate those and kind of don't have a problem with that. So we can even speak about our spiritual life, and we're not talking about our blood pressure. Like we, We literally can disassociate ourselves so that we have this spiritual reality that is free floating that actually might be completely disconnected from anything tangible and physical. And we've done that so much that we've literally kind of have this spiritual language we use about our spiritual life and it has nothing to do with any physical tangible thing. I think, I think that's really a misread of even what the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul uses spiritual language all the time, but every time he's doing that, he's talking about the power of the spirit in our physical, physical embodied lives. We also live in a hyper-individualized world where many Christians have a spiritual life without the local church. Brothers and sisters, I, I can only imagine if the Apostle Paul Jesus himself were sitting here and I were to ask, hey, is it possible to have a spiritual life outside of the church? They would just be shocked at such a question. Your spiritual life is very physical. And like the physical body of Jesus, the church of God is physically located. It it is interesting when you think of local church. It's a located church. It has a physical, 
address. There's a physical place. This is a physical gathering. Lord willing, after the service, you will physically greet brothers and sisters in Christ who physically exist, who may need a spiritual prayer, but they also may need a hug or a real conversation or help this afternoon for something physical that is very much connected to the work of the Spirit as you minister among such people. So just hear that. First, first misconception that we're trying to correct. The church is not a metaphor. Here's the second. The church is not coffee with friends. One of the most misinterpreted Bible verses is the text that Jim just read for us in Matthew chapter 18. Now, I have to be honest with you. I rarely preach a text where I tell you what it's not saying. Most of the time when we're preaching text, we're preaching what it is saying. He, thus saith the Lord. And it says this sermon is saying, thus not saith the Lord, or however you want to say that in King James or whatever. But that, that last verse in verse 20, if you look at your notes or in your Bibles, Matthew 18, 20, I think that has caused more than a few problems in our metaphorical view of church and initialization of church, hyper-individualized existence. We read that and we're like, sweet, me at Panera with my two sisters or brothers, I'm good. That's my church. Because he, Jesus said it. For where two or three are gathered in my name, and I'm, I'm gathered at Panera, they got way better coffee than hope. For where two or, and, and better donuts and pastries. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That is my church. Brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you, that is, that, that is just a total misreading that has done more damage than good. People think that verse 20 means that a spiritually intentional gathering of more than one is equivalent to church. And that, that's the argument. No, 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 we're not, we're not just talking... We're just not talking shop, and there's a little bit of that going on, but there is a spiritual intentionality to our meetings. Wonderful, beautiful, and good. But that's not what that text is saying. The church is more than the cumulative collection of Christians, no matter their spiritual fruitfulness. Brad Schreiner, who was on staff here, what, 12-ish years and currently still serves as an elder, told, tells this story that, that I'm, I'm stealing from him and telling you. They were at a Christian concert. Can't remember what it was. It was like a third day or one of those concerts several years ago now, and they were walking out to their car in the parking lot after the concert was over, and there's just beside them walking the same direction, but completely disconnected from them are two other couples. And we're talking about the concert and what they liked, etc. And one of the couples says to the other, hey, I'll see you tomorrow in church, because it was a Saturday night. And the other couple responds back and says, we just went to church. No, they didn't. I mean, I need to find why that is in a second, but that, that's not it. See, no, notice what that assumes. Any gathering of Christians, two or three in my name, where there's some level of spiritual intentionality or spiritual focus in some way is by definition a church. That's not the case. Let's look at this text. If you have your notes, look with me at the text. There are three things in the text itself that correct the view that the church is any spiritual gathering of more than one. Here's the first. The context of Matthew 18 is the issue or the topic of church discipline. This is a statement, verse 20 specifically, 
is a statement regarding church discipline. If a brother, if your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault. I mean, say that nicely. Between him and you alone, we're already, that's a hard one, right? No gossip, no texting your friend. Did you hear, you know what she did to me? Like already, we we could talk all day on church discipline, but we got to move past it. But just notice that. This is when brothers and sisters, arguably already in a church somewhere, are having some kind of an issue. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But look at 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two. Notice there's other numbers being mentioned here too. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. No, notice that. If you go back, if you jump down to 20, what was the number Jesus used? Two or three. Look at verse 16. Same phrase is used. But in that context, what are the two and three reference? Two or three is so that there's a unified witness for establishing evidence. I think we totally missed it. We hear the two or three, two or three in verse 20, and we've all of a sudden, we float, we're already in the clouds, and so we feel right to then spiritually define this as any spiritual intentional gathering. Now we realize actually what the two or three was initially talking about was that, every, that it's clear that truth is done, that what really happened is obvious. There's a unified witness for establishing evidence. So the context is specifically church discipline. That's the first thing that needs to be corrected. So if you are using this verse two or three in the context of church discipline, you've applied it beautifully. But if you're using in the, if the church discipline is happening at Panera, you're spot on. But if this is just kind of metaphorical church, any spiritual intentional gathering, you're wrong. If that couple was at that concert with the Shriners, they were doing church discipline in section G, then that's a perfect example of two or three gathered in my name. But if they had left the context of the text, if they'd completely removed it from what God's communicative intention was, and then they allowed culture's hyper-individualism and this weird dualistic spirituality that's disembodied to then define for them what the church is, well, then they're wrong. And I'm not saying that in a sense to be hard on them. I'm, I'm saying that so that we're, we're serious about Scripture. Let God's Word be God's Word. And what it doesn't say, let's not say it says. Here's a, here's a second. That, that, that phrase in verse 20, in my name, where two or three are gathered in my name, is speaking about the authority of Jesus. It's a gathering in the name of Christ. That, that, that phrase is always used to say, brothers and sisters, it is not your authority. It, it is God's. So realize that church discipline moment there is a sacred significant one where you are empowered by the authority of King Jesus to assess the situation by the power of the Spirit. In fact, usually that phrase in, in my name is connected to the work of the Spirit confirming and directing. That in God's beautiful providence, he will make sure that the process is guided appropriately. We, we can sinfully rebel against that, but if done well with evidence and truth and grace, the Spirit is guiding that. Look at, if we keep reading, 
17, verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, i.e., you can no longer affirm that that is a brother or sister. That's, that's hard to hear, and that's a whole different topic of church discipline, but realize exactly what the context is. And then listen to where 18 and 19 go. Truly, I say to you, there's that authoritative preface. I, when we went through John, I told you Jesus loves to do those. Like here he's given this authoritative preface. He's making a promise when he says this. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you, here's that number thing again. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now that, that could be easily misinterpreted, and there's a lot of questions you might have about those two verses, but here, here's where it connects to in my name. God is saying, do not think that you are on your own in this, and I, by my spirit, am not working. The gathered church has been promised by Christ that he is powerfully at work guiding it to fulfill the promises that he said he will do. If you were with us last week and we looked in this same gospel where Jesus says, I will build my church. He's claiming authority over his church. And in those two verses, 18 and 19, he's saying, let me just tell you something. You aren't seeing all the cables and connections, but I'm telling you, it's at work. And I will cleanse my church, I will care for my church, I will protect my church, and the gates of hell can't stand against it. Well, neither can any kind of politics in a local church. That's why that phrase, in my name, is so important. So again, see what it's not saying. It's not saying, hey, we gathered at Panera in Jesus' name and had some spiritual, intentional conversations. That's not what the text is saying. Last thing, if we read verse 20, evidence that it's not talking about coffee with friends, Jesus ends his statement on church discipline with this. For where two or three, again, think witnesses, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You see, what Rather than defining what the church is, verse 20 is summarizing one aspect of what the church does. There's the difference. Verse 20 is not saying this is what the church is. Verse 20 is saying this is what the church does. You see the difference there? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a categorical difference. It's not defining church. Well, I think churches do when two or three gather in my name. No saying that it's what the church is. The present day shift from going to church to being church can lead to this category mistake. Now, I'm, I'm not denying that the people of God are the church. There's a truth to that. But the, we get this category mistake where we, we kind of shift that, where we just kind of think the church is wherever we are, or at least wherever we are if there's more than one of us. The church is a sacred God-facilitating gathering that cannot be reproduced or replaced by alternative forms of Christian community. The church is not just community. It is the institution that God established in his name. 
Now, historically, the church has given three marks, three symptoms of what is the church. One is Scripture, the authoritative proclamation and submission to God's Word. That's one. So any organization that is doing that, again, it's looking churches, but it, by definition, needs more. The second would be the ordinances, that there would be baptism and that there would be Lord's Supper. So I'm, I'm doubting at Christian concerts they do a lot of baptism. To be honest with you, if they did do baptism, they'd be wrong. Christian colleges shouldn't be doing baptism. I, I remember this when I was at Biola. They would regularly take communion at the school, and I would always not participate, which several dozen college students noticed and would come up after a chapel and they saw me not participate in communion. They'd say, hey, Dr. Kling, I saw you didn't take communion. And so I started talking to these college students. Next thing you know, we're having some gathering one night and there's like a couple hundred people asking me, why am I not taking communion? Because, because Biola University is not a church. And here's my argument. If they also do baptisms, then I'll take communion. But you'll notice at those events, they don't do both the ordinances because they know that baptism is reserved for what? It's reserved for the local church. So it doesn't mean I wasn't there singing. It doesn't mean I wasn't, I wasn't holding a sign up. It was clear to me that that practice at a beautiful, godly, biblically committed school had assumptions of church that you can take some of its practices and not necessarily be understanding it properly. And for me, I'm like, no, you know when I take communion? Every single time at my local church, which happened to be a free church just down the road. So I am taking communion at church. That's one of the marks of the church. That's why my own family, we aren't doing communion as a family. We're not, because we're not a church. Well, there's two or three gathered, that's not what it means. But when we sit together here, the first Sunday of the month, as a family, we take communion, because communion is not for my family, it's for God's family. You see the difference? The third mark is authority or church discipline. So scripture, ordinances, and authority, that there actually is a spiritual accountability and authority for all of us. Those are the three marks. Christian concert maybe hits on one of those. It's not a church. Third misconception we need to correct, the church is not a human project. Now, now it might look like one, it might appear to be a human organization, but the church cannot be described as a human project. I mean, evidence of this is what I already mentioned a couple minutes ago. What did Christ say? I will build my church. That immediately makes a divine claim on the local church. Now, this might be hard to grasp by experience. Because what do we see? Well, we see people working. It's not like there's angels in the office. You come in on Monday and there's like the archangel. Yeah, it's my week to cover the phones. Well, it feels pretty human. There's human mistakes and human personalities and human fingerprints over everything in the church, and that may be true. But the truthfulness that the church is not a human project is declared by God in Scripture. Here's a good analogy. If you were living 2,000 years ago and you met Jesus and you knew nothing about him, you would not have said, that dude is the son of man. That is God incarnate. You would have said, uh, 
you, you, you speak with a Nazarene accent. Oh, are you from Nazareth? He would have looked human. He, he wouldn't, it's not, like, it's not like he's levitating when he's never tired because he's levitating as he's walking down the road to the next ministry town. He looked human. He sits on a well in John 4 and he's probably sweating and he needs something to drink. He looks human. That's, that's a weird, strange verse that we overly spiritualize. When John the Baptist, what's the first thing he says when he sees him? Behold the Lamb of God. Like, he did not look like a barn animal. He looked like a man. Yet what does Scripture teach us about him? What did Jesus say about himself? What did Jesus prove, if we want to say it that way, by the resurrection? He was also God. But he didn't look it. It's not like he was, in, he, he, not like he wouldn't bleed. We saw that he does. It's not like he wasn't hungry. Or how about this? Did he sleep? He slept on a boat in a storm. He would laugh. He would cry at funerals. He would sit in fellowship with men and women who needed the work he could do. And yet at the same time, and this is what we celebrate every Christmas, he was fully God and yet fully man. Now, we always want to be careful when we use Jesus as an analogy. So at the same time I'm using it, I should be slapping my wrist. But just understand a little bit how the church as the body of Christ, get that, is human and looks human, but in every way God, by his spirit, has said this is not simply a human project. That's the only way, by the way, in our text in Matthew 18 that Jesus can say, gathered in my name, I am with you. Like, notice that. It's not merely a human project. Even your church discipline is not, let alone the rest of this. So that even right now, here's the beauty, even right now, me, just a, a mere man who prepared a message for you, God, in his overflowing gracious providence, will use the words that I say to connect to you in ways I would have never thought of and deeply impress them in you by his spirit, and I won't even know about it. Because when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's talking about his ministry care for you, and he's allowing a few broken vessels who need that same ministry to be used by him so that through the spirit, at the end of the day, you can say, oh, Mickey was working. Oh, no. God was working. Because it's not a human project. But forwards in a modern Western culture that is drenched with democratic, egalitarian, and free enterprise models of community and dictated by forces of consumer preferences, unbiblical beliefs about the church and its ministry can exert enormous pressure on us to think it's merely human. So we must work hard to define the church properly, i.e. biblically, which we'll do next week when we say, what is the church? Maybe, maybe I could even say this as I finish this third misconception. The church is not merely a helpful resource that may benefit you or your family. Like if it really is God's work, and if he really is assigned this project as his primary work in the world, then the church, rather than being just like a helpful resource, like, oh, I love these 
these like little chips at Trader Joe's, or I love this particular thing at this shop, or I love this taco at such and such a restaurant. Like rather than being a resource that you might frequent every so often and benefit you or your family, the church may just be therefore the most important and eternal organization in operation in the entire world. Like, just think about that for a second. The church may be the most important organization and institution on the planet. Because Christ didn't say, I will build my nation. He didn't say, I will build this organization. He didn't say, I will build this business. He said, I will build my church. And if that is to Christ, the most important institution, can you imagine Christians not taking that seriously? Last misconception, the church, and this is where we really get offensive. The church is not a voluntary society. Here is an offensive truth in our consumeristic, free market world. And here it is. For Christians, church isn't an option. Church is not a restaurant or a movie theater or your favorite store. It is your home. It is your family and it is your ministry assignment. Do you think of it that way? Christians may select a local church to attend, but by salvation in Christ, a Christian has already been assigned to the church. Just as a child is born into a family, and we understand that's the only way it works. In fact, if somebody is born into a family, and I, both or either of those parents are not engaged. We have pity on them. My family and I watched a movie called, what was it called, 12 Mighty Orphans? About these late 1930s orphanage where a football coach comes and starts a football team. And, and, and they have some excess down in the state of Texas. Again, what, 80 years ago. Cool family story about these orphans, etc. And it was interesting because throughout this film... The fact that they were orphans is powerful. And they just get ripped on all the time. You don't have a mom. You don't have a dad. There's a powerful scene where this 17-year-old sees his mom again for the first time. And she rejects him again. And here's this grown man now weeping like a baby because mama didn't want him. And I'm telling you, you've seen some of that in your own lives. That's happening right now in our own communities. And nobody would say, oh, that's, you know what, I'm... Who needs a mom and dad? Nobody would say that. Nobody would ever say, yeah, big deal, no big deal. Who needs a mom and a dad? Nobody would say that. I grew up with a beautiful mom, but I still felt the loss of not having a dad around. And that just, you just couldn't feel that. There were some wonderful men in my church, and it, nobody could fill that gap. And I said to myself, I will never leave my kids. I will not, because I've tasted that. And every one of you would agree, and yet when it comes to the church, when there's a new birth, there's a brand new child of God, we act like it's okay if they're orphans? As if they don't, they, they don't need a home? Seriously? They don't need siblings? To speak plainly, a churchless Christianity has no relation to Christ. And yet it has become one of the most common movements 
and practices in our day. And that, to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, is not just a rebuke of the church or a rejection of the church. What they are ultimately rejecting is a proper view of who Jesus is. No orphan ever says, I really didn't need a mom. No. Now, they may be, I'm mad at mom, I never want to see her again, and I've heard those words even the last couple weeks from a young man in our community. They never want to see their mom again. I totally can imagine after so much hurt they would feel that, but I'm going to tell you right now, they're speaking that out of hurt. Everybody wants their mama, and everybody wants their dad. And when they don't have it, they're hurting inside. If somebody says they don't need their family of God, they don't understand God. Or they're speaking out of hurt. Or they've never actually been born in that family. So what comes to mind, brothers and sisters, when you hear the word church? What comes to mind? Let's remove anything that it is not. Did any of the four misconceptions I shared today, this morning, sound familiar to you? Did they resonate with the way up till now, Lord willing, you've been thinking about the church? Parents, grandparents, have you explained the purpose and role of church to your kids? Kids. What comes to mind when you hear the word church? Before we could define what the church is, we needed to define what the church isn't. We had to remove obstacles and clear the ground before we could build a proper definition. My supervisor knew I could read. He just wanted to know if I could read rightly. My hope is that after this message, you are more sensitive to faulty definitions and practices of the church and just as aware, more self-aware of the assumptions, habits, and practices you carry as you think about and act toward Christ's church. One manifestation of which is Hope Evangelical Free Church, which Christ himself promised he would build. It's his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which ministers to us, which guides us, which cares for us. Father, and help us to not just read your word rightly, but even not misread your word. To take a text and say, brothers and sisters, this is not what it's saying. To make sure we know what the church is. Father, we needed to ask and say what the church isn't. And in this culture, in this day and age, maybe even in this gathering of Christians, those kind of, uh, those kind of statements need to be made. Father, as we sing a final song, may it be one that declares your beauty and your glory and your goodness rooted in the promises we've received, not merely as individual children of God, but also as the one holy, universal church of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.